0: Welcome to the For the Church Podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library here in Kansas City, Missouri, on the campus of Midwestern Seminary. And I have with me, once again, my friend, my colleague, Ronnie Kurtz, who is the social media and marketing manager for Midwestern Seminary. I have to get the title right, so... Basically, what this means is you get paid to be on Twitter, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it. Mean, you, yeah, you get you get paid to do <laughs> something what, like that. You, you get paid to do what people um, cheat their companies out of every day by when they're on Twitter. <laughs> you actually get paid. It's your job to be on Twitter. It is. But consequently, what it means is you actually think more deeply about about Twitter than probably most people do. Like you're not just dealing in, in cat gifs and all those sorts that's, of things. That's
1: right. Actually, it's become a well said fact on social media that I'm not a, I'm not a big GIF fan. So. Okay. Well, all right. So I, just, <laughs> I
0: heard your pronunciation, and because you're the social media guru, we need an authoritative word from on high, an apostolic uh,
1: declaration. <laughs> is it GIF or GIF? Hard G, soft G? I don't know that I can give you any apostolic word. Okay. My argument, there's a solid argument either way, and this is a heated debate, as you know. It is. The guy who created it pronounces it GIF. Okay, however, it stands for graphic that the G does: That's right, and so i I, I like gif, so <laughs>
0: but gif just
1: sounds better like peanut butter, yeah.
0: but so the guy who created it, <laughs> so the actual author, authorial intent, he says it's pronounced gif that,
1: that, that's what I've heard at least. Yeah. so
0: I wonder if there's some middle way if there's a third way. if do you me- could try it right now, I'd appreciate <laughs> well, it. <laughs> I, I'm going to try it, but do you remember did you ever listen to the podcast serial?
1: I, I, I'm like the la- only person in America okay, who did well, it. Well,
0: they always had a promo for MailChimp on there. And they like played audio clips of people talking about MailChimp or pronouncing MailChimp. And there was someone with a foreign dialect of some kind who said MailChimp. That's, how, that's <laughs> how they pronounce Chimp. <laughs> and I think I wonder if that is the
1: doorway to a middle way pronunciation of Jif of Gif. GIF. Man. It could be Gif. I I say we forsake all of our planned (laughs) conversations and move further into this. The G should be pronounced with a sort
0: of C-H-Y sound. (laughs) Heef. That's what we're going to do. Well, that's – I'm glad we solved that conundrum for you. We have more conundrums and riddles wrapped in enigmas ensconced in in choritos to talk about today. Um, This is a mailbag episode. Uh, Those of you who followed along, we've done a few uh, few of these in the past. Uh, feel free on social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, to comment under the posts uh, for this particular episode and leave the, the sorts of questions and topics that you'd like us to address, or you can always use the hashtag on Twitter, FTC Mailbag. and if you do that and ask a question or suggest a particular topic, I compile all of those. I r- run through the hashtag like a whale sifting through the krill, and we gather up all the different questions and topics. And so we're presenting today just a handful of those. Obviously, we can't do uh, justice to every question. you know. Um, otherwise, we do a whole episode uh, to some questions. And some we will. Uh, but these are ones that we're just going to take a few minutes to kind of um, bat around. And I hope that you'll enjoy it. So here's the first question, Ronnie. Uh, a few people actually asked this, or one, or one person asked this question on Facebook. And there were a few others who sort of followed along to say, oh, that's a good question. I would like to hear that address. So I know that there's some desire for it. And the question essentially is expressed this way. Is there anything wrong with planting churches for college students? Mm. So there's a phenomenon. It's not new, but, you know, the, in, the, in the church planting movement, the targeting of college campus areas or college towns, I suppose, because, um, yeah, lots of young um, folks there, um, active, energetic, and it's a mission field. There's no doubt at all that um, the collegiate years are a prime time for those who are sorting through who they are, faith questions, seeker-type questions, those sorts of things. So we have uh, different networks, denominations, and what have you, uh, deciding to plant churches on college campuses or near college campuses, targeting college students. What are your thoughts
1: on that? Yeah, actually, when I was kind of cutting my teeth in ministry, still am in a way, but when I was really fresh, uh, even in college, my first— the, the first job I had in ministry was a church planting intern where I was kind of working with NAM uh, and some, some church planters to kind of research church planting and, and kind of look at those things. We were, I was a part of a church plant that was really close proximity to a college. And what ended up happening was that when the church was planted, it, it expanded in numbers quickly, and much of that growth was college students. And so we, we often got the critique that we were a college church. Uh, which was never the intention. It, that's just who came, and uh, a person who I think is somewhat of an authority on this is is a friend. I know you know him as well, but Jeff Dodge, who's done just some amazing work amongst college students in Iowa, and I love what he 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 kind of says this phrase. He says he he's never aiming to make churches for, uh, for college students. That that's not the end goal, right? Uh, right. The end goal of, uh, of a church is the glory of God, and. And so that—that's what he has in mind. Now, if those churches are primarily com- comprised of college students, and that's who the Lord is sending, well, then so be it. Uh, but but I would have a, some small ecclesial problems of saying this church is specifically for college students, uh, which I think is a much different right. scenario than of college students.
0: Yeah, to me, um, as you sort of indicate there, it, it depends on your intention, your emphasis. To see college students as a mission field or a particular demographic underserved by the church yeah. is one thing. To mm-hmm. create sort of uh, just a more next-level parachurch ministry, I mean, that's sort of the concern, right? So we're looking at two things uh, as those who believe in, in the primacy of the local church as the fullest expression of one's discipleship, right? Your connection to a local body, covenanting with the body. Ideally, that is an intergenerational or that's multigenerational generational. Right. Um, expression of of the body, and of course, depending on context, that may or may not be possible. Right? Uh, typically, church plants in general um, sort of it takes longer to have a, a multi generational expression. It's no, you know, fault to the church plant in and of itself, um, but the intention is not. well, Let's make sure we only serve young people, or That's let's, right. well, let's only be a young you know person's church. It's just by virtue of the circumstances and context and what have you. Um, and and the lord 's sovereignty that sometimes it works out that way, so I think if you 're going into a college campus or a college area and you 're thinking we want to be, as you said, a church of college students um you 're on the wrong track mm-hmm. and yet if you 're asking sort of the missional question, which is to say um, there is a great dropout rate between you know age eighteen and such and such, you know by some estimation seventy percent uh, i don 't know if it 's quite that high anymore or may it may be higher actually i 'm not sure. But if, if you're looking at that need and you're seeing what exists for college students, and f- for some of us what we see is very valuable parachurch ministries, but nonetheless the parachurch becomes many college students' church. Those who are interested in, in pursuing the faith, they do not um, see the value or, or get integrated into a local church because the parachurch becomes their mm. local church. So in some respects this is practically speaking and theologically speaking an upgrade. From the parachurch ministries' uh, evangelistic approach, but at the same time, if if it's only existing, um, so the questioner on Facebook, you know, brought up the sort of demographically focused church planting um, expressions like biker church yeah. and cowboy church, and to the extent that college church is that, I would say it's it's really unwise mm-hmm. um, to do that to limit your church expression. But to say that because of where your church is, it's reaching a particular mission field because of your circumstance and context, that's different. Absolutely. Right. So I know Emmaus, where you're one of the pastors, um, you have a particular ministry or at least a, a desire to minister to a particular immigrant population in your area. That's different than saying we're going to be, you know, this immigrant type church. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we want to be as fullest an expression of, of the body as we can be. Mm-hmm. And that means wherever we're located, uh, how our our context dictates our mission field and who's here—that's who we want to reach.
1: That's right, and, and, and that's you know, I think even even between us, Jared, we represent something of a broader problem. In that, I'm a part of a church plant, uh, come kind of coming out of the plant phase right. and into just the you know we're a church now phase. And you're a part of a church revitaliz- revitalization, kind of in the same boat, not really revitalization anymore, kind of on the healthy side of that, and. One of the interesting things about those two worlds is I remember planting, and, you know, our pastoral team was relatively young, and therefore we just reached younger people a little more easily. And so I remember about a year in just praying with the elder team, actually taking time out of our elder meeting and praying, God, would you send us old people? Yeah, there you go. Like we, we need it. Our people need it. We need it. Uh, the, the multigenerational, um, it, it's healthy to to have that. Whereas revitalizers often find themselves praying for young people. Yeah. And there's just something good about uh, – and something kingdom image imaging about multi-generational, uh, the same way that we have with, with multi-ethnic. Uh, it's just good for diversity to be in the local church.
0: Yeah. I think just one last caution I would issue to those who are thinking through these um, these things is there is some something different between sort of the college – uh, or the collegiate demographic and sort of biker church, cowboy church, right? So the collegiate demographic, it brings with it its own difficulties in the sense that if you're if you're aiming at this particular student, they're only a college student for four years, maybe yeah. six years. I mean, you know, it took me six <laughs> years to get through college. so um, Just because I went slowly, by the way, not because I got poor grades or anything. But, you know, so you're looking at a, a, a finite period of time at which someone is in that demographic, mm-hmm. right? They're going to age out of that eventually. So if that's what is the the engine generating your church, if your church identity is in that, it, you're you're adopting a transient identity right. in a sense. What happens when people age out? Is the church not for me anymore? That sort of thing. On, on the other hand, if you um, are actually taking that precaution well, and you are seeking to be a church and not a para church, uh, you know, disguised as a church for college students. Um, as they age out, they still have a home because mm-hmm. they're part of the church. And they That's may right. move away. You know, you know, obviously, college students move away when they get jobs and all those sorts of things. But if you're actually functioning as a church, you'll have a, a better versatility. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in my mind, the biker church, cowboy church, I'm not saying every expression of that is, is sinful or that, you know, uh, you know, that those places aren't real churches or anything like that. But when you define a church by a particular identity other than the identity of Christ, you're essentially saying, we unite with you here because you're a biker mm. or you affiliate with the biker culture or whatever it is. And obviously, I, you know, I think there are missional things you can do to reach communities like that without staking the identity of That's your right. church yeah. on these cultural markers. Um, it, it, it almost, in the, in the worst instances, it flies in the face of what the Bible says about who Christ is for, neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, mm. um, but Christ is in all. So we're not going to say we're we're for jews we're for greeks yeah we're for bikers we're for cowboys but we're for people who need jesus that's right
1: and on the college thing uh last thing i have for this is just on the college thing in particular because i have some experience there uh coming from the, the previous church i was at was primarily consisted of college students and even the church i'm currently pastoring we are a young church that's just who we've been able to reach and who's come and uh, the, the grace of God has sent us some, you know, some older folks, which has been really great for raising the wisdom level bar of our church as a whole. <laughs> but there is just something as a pastor, I, I, worry, for some time, I worry sometimes for guys who they're, they're intentionally setting out to only reach young people, especially college-age students. Because there is a difference, even in joy, in helping someone die well than helping someone graduate well. There's just a difference there. Yeah. And seeing seeing saints through multiple life seasons, and 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 kind of handing them, you know, as it were, as a shepherd to Jesus, is much different than helping them get across a, a graduation line. That's right. And there's just a lot more joy in the former. That's good. All right, let's move on to our second question,
0: uh, which ju- is just the tidy, simple little <laughs> question <laughs> of the Lord's Supper. And let me give, let me give you some background. So. Dear listener, by the time you hear this, it'll be several weeks on. Um, hopefully, I will have come out from hiding after my tweet on this issue. Uh, but currently, as of this posting, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fending off people who are, you know, throwing flaming, you know, bags of dog dew at my window. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's really not that big a deal. But anyway, so I, I posted recently on Twitter a claim, a, a personal. <laughs> A personal position about the practice of communion. And essentially what I said was I, I do not believe that the Bible allows us to practice communion or receive communion outside the context of the corporate gathering of a local church. So I specifically used as examples no retreats, no weddings, um, I don't remember what else we said, no conferences or something like that. And the It it shut down Twitter, Ronnie. Like, the whole (laughs) – Twitter emailed me and they're like, look, you got to delete this tweet because you broke the website. No, uh, uh, that's not what happened. But certain people got really upset. A lot of people got sarcastic. Um, On Twitter? uh, No. (laughs) If you can imagine that, some people were kind of sarcastic. And they used GIFs, GIFs, and GIFs to respond. respond. Those GIFs will get you. The the GIFs (laughs) were the hardest ones uh, to consider. So – so here's my question. Uh, where do I get off making such a, a controversial and, uh, and revolutionary statement? And I'm being sarcastic as I, as I say that. I've been taken aback by the response, uh, not because of the disagreement. This is something I've tried to express, and I've tried to engage in various conversations ab- uh, about it. Those who seem to be asking questions in good faith, mm. um, you know, yeah, I'll take that bait. And sometimes you discover they really are asking in good faith. Course, They've yeah. never heard of this. My concern is not that people disagree with my position. I'm certainly not you know the Pope or anything like that. Um, so I don't you know if you disagree, that's fine. I want to know why, where in the Bible you have your foundation uh, for the practice of communion. Uh, what I don't want to hear is um, I've never heard of this concept before in my yeah. life. The, just the idea that somebody would have an objection to it. Says something about evangelicalism, but I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself. Ronnie, help me out. And am I? <laughs> you're the theologian at the table, um, and and I'm just a guy who writes things. So wow, yeah. uh, <laughs> you're a pastor, I PhD think student, yeah. and um, I'm I'm just the voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so help me out. It, yeah, am I just way off base with with the idea that we should not take communion? Well,
1: outside? in fear that I might be walking into a plethora of emails and Twitter comments myself along with you. Uh, I, I'm in total agreeance. Um okay. I think the Lord's Supper and communion is an ordinance given to the local church and should be practiced by the local church with the local church. I
0: didn't know, by the way, that Ronnie – I didn't know Ronnie's position on this, by the way, before I brought him in. So if you think I'm trying to, like, stack the deck, yeah. um, we just sat down. Actually, right before we recorded, we went over, like, okay, what actually do you think about this? <laughs> so, I, and again, I'm totally fine if, you, if you're going to disagree um, but I'm I'm banking that you have a, a an exegetical argument yeah. for why you would disagree. But yeah. but as it turns out, you do agree with my wisdom. I do. Which yeah, is good. I'm,
1: I'm with you. Yeah, if you were a pope, I'm following along. So. F- friendship maintained. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. Good. Yeah. Uh, oh, all right. So keep going. Yeah. So I, I I agree that the the Lord's Supper is something for the church and should be done by the church and in the church. Uh, and if I can just add another one with the church, uh, and I, I see that pretty. Clearly, actually, you know some ecclesiology just thinking about studying the church, sometimes we move into doing some implied theology where we 're actually saying, because of this reality in the scripture, I also think this thing must be true yeah um, i'm not sure this is one of those. I actually think this might be a little more explicit than some people think, and i I, I get that in first Corinthians eleven as paul is is talking about the lord's Supper and he 's actually rebuking. The Corinthian church for, for, for some individuals taking the Lord's Supper and not waiting for one another, and maybe even taking too much so that others aren't able to partake or even leave hungry. And there's a refrain that he keeps using, uh, depending on what translation you're using, but it's basically this: it's, it's, when you are gathered, do this. Yeah. When you are gathered, do that. And he even says, he goes so far into saying in 1 Corinthians 11, kind of halfway through the chapter there, he says, Don't you have homes? That you could eat in alone, but when when you're doing this, That's right, come come together, wait for one another.
0: Yeah. So he he's making actually a, a circumstantial uh, reference there to say t- to distinguish what this meal is from things you do in your home. That's right. Yeah, is different. So that even I mean, there's so many layers to this because um, you know there are things that can be somewhat confusing if you're not paying careful attention. So some of the responses brought up the idea of biblical references to to the breaking of bread and and those sorts of things. Well, not every reference to the breaking of bread, That's right. especially if, you know, if the context isn't speaking about the body of Christ and what have you. If it's talking about the breaking of bread, that could just be a meal that the Christians are having together. It could just be a meal the family's having together. It, it's not clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. Now, it, it may be. I'll acknowledge that there may be a reference there, but it's not obvious from the text. So I want to go to the text that actually... Specifically refer to the Lord's Supper. Mm. We know that's exactly what Paul's yeah, talking about. That's right. And 1 Corinthians ten and eleven, as you cited, are are two of the clearest. So some folks are are going to the upper room. They want to talk about the Last Supper. There's some question about whether um, that as the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, you know, qualifies as an instance of the early church practicing the Lord's Supper as the church been established yet. Mm. It's it's before Pentecost. All these sorts of things. Clearly, the Lord is giving. Us a theology of what we make of the meal, um, but whether we should see that m- moment as the template, right? So I think when we get into the early church, we begin to see um, the practice of this on the Lord's Day, and then, of course, Paul's explicit teaching, which you, you reference. So for me, uh, um, 1 Corinthians 10, in particular, verses 16 and 17, where he is talking about participation in the body of Christ, when you take of this meal, right? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, there's the overlap there between um, the bread as in some ways a participation in in Christ himself, the body of Christ, but also the um, meaning of the church as the body mm. of Christ. And so he seems to make this this combination there, which to me is indicating that this is a corporate Meal, right? Corporate comes from the word uh, for body, corp, right? So it is a corporate meal. But then once you get into chapter 11, we have some really interesting things that Paul is saying. So, um, verse 18, when you come together as a church, he says. That to me gives a circumstance for what are the the circumstantial parameters for the meal? Well, when you come together as a church, Mm. which to me would rule out um, any subset of that, whether it's a small group of a church. You're all members of the same church, but it's not the, it's, it's not the gathering of, right. of, the, of the church. It's uh, a small group or the singles retreat or the women's retreat or whatever it is. It also would rule out for me things like weddings because that's not the gathering of a body. Um, Paul goes on to say in, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And that's a favorite uh, you know proof text of, um, of my pastor, Nathan Rose. Who says there? You know, is the idea like we're assembling together. You you wouldn't uh, intentionally um, isolate the supper to subsets of the body. Mm. So some will say, look, you know, the Lord's Day gathering when you celebrate the supper is every member present, and if not, do you not partake? And I say, well, that's a you know concession you make in wisdom, but the the intention is that we are gathering right. as a body. It's not um, the, the intention of a subset, small group of retreat is not gathering as a body. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I don't want to belabor this point, but I think a lot of it has to do with your with one's understanding of all sorts of things related to polity and just ecclesiology in general. What you think of, of, of baptism? That's right. Can one be baptized outside the context of a local church? Um, that's another question probably for another day, but we probably <laughs> both have opinions on that. I mean, I mean certainly you know, someone's physically able to be baptized. Of course. But is yeah. that the best operation of baptism? Should, hey, I won my friend to Christ. Let me go baptize him in the Pacific Ocean right now. Um yeah, so the, I mean, there's questions that I would want to ask sort of surrounding that. Mm-hmm. Is that the best practice of baptism, et cetera? But then issues of church membership and all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, as a pastor, um, I, I think it's wise to have thought about this issue, especially as it pertains to weddings, mm-hmm. before you start getting asked to do weddings. And uh, I, I've, even, I've even seen that. Two just personal convictions that I have about doing weddings, like actually facilitating the weddings, is that I don't do weddings of non believers. For multiple reasons, which is a conversation for another day, and I will not administer communion during a wedding, uh, for the reasons that we're describing here, and I thought, kind of writing those two things out, that I would get more flack for the first one, but it's not the case. Mm. I I get more flack for politely denying uh, the the chance to administer communion during a wedding, yeah, and. And oftentimes it's very innocent, you know, as I'm doing premarital counseling or, or something of the sorts. A couple, as they're walking through kind of their uh, here's what we want out of the ceremony, they'll say and at this moment we actually want to do communion. And I'm like, oh, man, we've got to have the conversation. Right. <laughs> I've got to break it to you that I'm not going to do that. And uh, it's, it's always interesting to see. Sometimes you get how dare you. You're going to ruin <laughs> my wedding day. This is like the most intimate moment that we could to have mm. together. And sometimes you get, oh, that makes sense with how what you believe about the church right. and what you believe the Lord's Supper signifies and, and church membership and those kinds of things. So,
0: Yeah, and it has many implications for just the way we think of the meal. And what I'm noticing in a lot of the responses um, is a, and I don't mean this in the pejorative sense, but just an ignorance of the larger question of the meal, a theology of, of communion, um, a good ecclesiology. What it seems to be indicative of is what is generally sort of – Um, you know, the cultural expression of faith in Western evangelicalism or American evangelicalism. I know that's a big blanket term, but generally it's a very individualistic. Mm. uh, The church essentially exists to facilitate my personal relationship with Jesus. And the church becomes a resource center by which I'm I'm either uh, advanced in my personal relationship with Jesus, my individual relationship with Jesus, or I'm not. And in fact, I'll choose a church based on Mm. which suits my needs as a personal follower of Jesus. Now, of course, we're all— you know, those who are Christians are personally following Jesus. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, all those sorts of things. But if that's all it is, then certainly the meal then becomes, you can take it, you can take it by yourself. Ronnie, I've got juice and bread right here. We can have <laughs> communion in this podcast because we're two or three are gathered, right? There you go. Uh, I had yeah. one fellow cite that verse to me, uh, which is just another, um, it's a whole other question. It's just, um, yeah, decontextualized, yeah. you know, proof text towards certain things. Um, that verse, by the way, is is about church discipline, essentially. In in context, it does have you know implications for ecclesiology and what have you, but not the way this one particular fellow um, thought. But what I'm seeing is is essentially the meal is about my individual or my personal relationship with Christ. And if that's all it is, right, then it doesn't matter where I take it or who serves it or where I am. Uh, maybe it doesn't even matter like what elements I use. I, it, it just it just opens the door. If we don't see it as a as a family meal mm-hmm. for um, you know a covenanting body, and we should probably shut the door on, on the conversation yeah. now because there's so much more we could say. There's implications here for the ideas of uh, fencing the table, close communion, closed communion, open communion, all those sorts of things. Can visitors who are members of other churches, you know, participate? Um, what kind of visitors, right? You know, so at, at many uh, you know Baptist churches, we let other Baptists, but not Presbyterians, and all those <laughs> sorts of things. We still affirm that Presbyterians who believe the gospel are our brothers, and yet they can't take communion. These are all, all different rabbit trails that I would love to chase, but I just wanted to talk about what the meal is, where we can take it, and on that note, now that we've um, really made everyone upset, let's take a coffee break. You go chill out, dear listener, because I know you need to. Go get some coffee, decaf, so that um, you're ready to mellow out with us in the second half of the program. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest-growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging Word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. I'm here with Ronnie Kurtz. We've been exercising our opinionated selves in the FTC mailbag installment, another great FTC mailbag installment of the For the Church podcast, um, I want to pick up with a question that is um, somewhat practical, right? So we had a planned question. You don't know that this question is coming. I told you I was <laughs> oh, no. going to throw a curveball at you. And, um, and, and here's literally what happened. We had a set of four questions we had um, agreed upon. And as I'm walking down the hallway after chapel this morning, Alan Lindholt, our security aficionado, uh, the John McLean of Midwestern <laughs> he Seminary. Uh, he pulled me aside and he said, "Jared, this would be a great thing to you know to cover because Alan is also a pastor at, at his church, um, and and he said this is something that we're wrestling through at our church." And he gave me a great question once before. He said, "Why don't you interview Noah Oldham on pastoral health and fitness?" And I thought, "Oh, okay." And I did. I you know Noah Oldham and asked him if he would be on here. And it's one of the most listened to episodes. So I thought Alan knows, like he's got his finger yeah. on the pulse of the podcast audience. So he threw this curveball question at me. I'm jettisoning the question we had planned. All right, and I'm asking you this: shooting from the hip. What are some guardrails for churches in regards to benevolence? So specifically, he was referencing. Again, we're walking and talking, so I didn't get all the backstory. But he's referencing you know, people approaching the church from outside the church, asking for money. Mm. Um, we need help, you know, paying rent this week, or I need gas money to get to you know such and such, or whatever it is. How can a church go about answering those questions or setting up sort of parameters that, um, ad- you know, address that need in, in wise
1: ways? Yeah, you, you couldn't pick a, an easy one to, to –
0: <laughs> That's to easy. Come impromptu. on. No, this, this is a good
1: question. And I actually just preached about money not too long ago. Okay, And so the, those – uh
0: preachers are always asking for money, man. I don't know yeah, what you're doing. <laughs> that's, but okay. That's what we're doing,
1: yeah. Uh, I uh, – so these conversations are kind of fresh on my brain, actually. And and this is, this is something I kind of communicated in the sermon is there seems to be somewhat of a tension in the New Testament even. Um, I believe that the New Testament is inspired and inerrant and, and profitable for everything that it claims to be. But there's a small tension here in that there is something to be said for financial prudence and wisdom and then something to be said for a gospel posture of giving away such that you're uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think the church would do well to think nuanced and carefully about this and at the same time live freely with their money uh, for the sake of the good of others and the glory of God. And so, so I think there's a couple of biblical things to keep in mind. I think Acts 2 is used very frequently for these kinds of conversations, and I think what's often missed in Acts 2 is those who are there are believers. And so I do think churches should... Consider that when allocating benevolence funds or if, if you have something like that uh, to, to take care of your members. I think that's actually a biblical thing to do yeah. is to take care of your members. And so if there's a member who's saying, pastor, help, I can't pay rent, that should take precedence on, over almost everything. At the same time, we're those who are called to love our enemies as ourselves, and we wouldn't deny ourselves rent money. And and therefore we shouldn't deny the enemy rent money in in certain situations. And so I think I think that that tension is one that we have to live in. It's a financial tension of of kind of the economics of the kingdom. They're not going to make sense to the world. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. I just want to share sort of the way we approached it at my last church, Middletown Springs Church uh, in Vermont. Um, So we wanted to take seriously Christ's admonition to give of those who ask of you. Right, um, but that's not the whole of biblical wisdom mm. on, on on the issue of benevolence. But we don't, we want to take that seriously, so that sets the tone. That's At right. least for me, it does. That's so Which good. is to say, you know, as as our Lord also said, we are to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. So that means I want to be shrewd and wise, and understand that many people who are asking um, are asking be, because of s- systemic issues in their own lives or patterns of behavior or um, circumstances that are better addressed by, by things other than handouts or what have you. So I don't want to have a spirit of suspicion about them. I don't want to make assumptions, judgments about anyone, especially from the outside, who's asking for money to pay their, their fuel oil bill you know, this month or whatever it is. Um, I don't want to approach them as a judgmental person or um, suspiciously. But I do want to be wise to know that many times these questions arise not as a one-time incident but as a pattern, a cycle that sometimes they can't climb out of because of decisions they've made earlier in their life or just you know, circumstances. So how can we address those things? Mm. So just practically, I don't know if this answers Alan's particular question. Maybe it could help those who are listening. We had, I had a discretionary fund um, where I as a pastor was authorized to give a one-time cash Handout out from this available, you know, monies. <clears throat> and th- there wasn't just like a, a supply of cash laying around the church. Like, like I'd have to give my own money essentially yeah. and the church would reimburse me. Now, now there was a limit to that. And of course I had to account for it. Who's it going to? What's it for? I couldn't just say, oh, I did, you know, you know, $200 benevolence this month and then somebody reimbursed me 200 bucks. I had to account for all of that. And I think it was 200 I was allowed up to $200 at my own discretion. Hmm. So that the, the churches has trusted me that I – in my discretion, could say no to someone. I don't think that's a, a need that we should give to you know to, but or I think it is, and I don't have to give the whole two hundred. I can just within two hundred on a one time. Beyond that, if so, if that same person comes back, they have to sit down with one of our deacons mm. and um, actually go over um, and answer certain questions about their budget, about their spending. And most folks drop out right after that. Once you say, hey, we're interested in helping you, and we really do want to help you. But our process is such because we don't have unlimited funds. We're a church on a, you know, quote-unquote fixed budget ourselves. Uh, In many regards, the income that you have coming from certain sources is more reliable than the income than we have because we're just operating on our tithes and offerings. And that can go up or down every month and what have you. Now, we had a very generous church, so Mm. – we didn't have you know, you know too many concerns about the benevolence fund drying up or anything, and we you know budgeted for the benevolence fund and those sorts of things. But we required people to sit down and kind of work through some of these issues, um, and and then we tried to see how can we address these things to prevent than the need rather mm-hmm. than just you have this need we're going to give you this cash or this money or we're going to pay your bill for you. How can we help you um, to be in a, a situation where you don't have that need anymore or it's less less frequent. And that you know, um, usually involved just helping people with financial planning. We had a particular um, lady in our church, her name was Natalie, um, who um, actually she went to be with the Lord uh, a couple of years ago. But she was the greatest at this because she was very kind and very patient, but also very frugal. Mm. And she would sit down with someone and, and go over the budget, you know, um, what are all your sources of income? How much do you have coming in every month? Let's look at all your bills. And then she would use her own um, sort of family budget as a model and show them. And many people would be surprised to find out that they had more money coming in than Natalie and her husband had coming in. Wow. And they would be surprised, how can you live on that kind of money? And she would say, well, <laughs> we don't spend $100 on a cell phone every month. We don't have satellite television. All the things that you don't need, they're, you know, luxuries and things. And so you're just helping people figure out, because most people, you know, don't grow up learning how to budget. They don't know. And it's just giving them the knowledge and the tools to be able to get out of these yeah. uh, you know, situations in, in the future. And then, you know, if they had an immediate need, like, like your electricity is about to get cut off, we can help, you know, help you kind of, you know, systemically. And because you've gone through the process, we're glad now that we've got you on the right foot to help you get out of the hole real quick and get yeah. your lights on and all those sorts of things. But it just sort of worked, um, you know, to solve the source of the need, not just, you know, meet the circumstantial need. And I would recommend just to kind of, you know, put a button on this question. I would recommend, if, um, if you haven't read, you who are listening, um, the book When Helping Hurts, uh, to please do that. It's a co-authored book. It's largely about missions, um, but certainly benevolence is an aspect of missions. And it just speaks to how sometimes just meeting that sur- you know, superficial uh, request for money or uh, food assistance, all those sorts of things, um, while, the- while it's good-hearted and kind to do that on a- in an ongoing way, it sometimes facilitates the varied dysfunctions or problems. Um, that you're trying to address. and mm-hmm. could actually be addressed if we worked towards um, you know, helping people with their systemic or, or behavioral issues. All right, one last question. We've got a little bit of time left, um, sort of a fun one, uh, depending on where we go with it. And um, it will probably be out of the social media headlines by the time you folks <laughs> listen to this. But the, the, the issue at root um, is a perennial issue. I don't know if you've seen this Instagram account, Preachers and Sneakers. I've seen, seen it. this. I think Jonathan Merritt, uh, who's a, a journalist, writer in New York, uh, he's the first guy I, s- I saw to mention it, but it's since gone crazy. Tim Chowley's did an article about it, what have you. Uh, what do we think about this, Ronnie Kurtz? Uh, <laughs> you're not a sneakerhead. You're very well-dressed. Hey, thanks. Man, you're the typical hipster seminarian. Wow. Uh, well, not not typical. In, in terms of your dress, you are, I, I yeah. would say. Um, but I don't – you're not a sneakerhead. No, I'm not. No. Yeah. So it is – I mean – Yeah, it's so if you're not familiar with the preachers and sneakers, it's essentially this anonymous person. I think they're anonymous, who's created this account where they just troll. um, Yeah, famous or celebrity preachers, their Instagram accounts and social media looks at what sneakers they're wearing in their in their photos, (laughs) and then posts how much those sneakers cost. Like he'll he'll repost a photo and then usually a snapshot of those sneakers, like on a shopping site or whatever. And tell you how much the outfit that the that the preacher is wearing yeah. cost. And in many cases it's a you know, the sneakers are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars and in some cases thousands of dollars actually. What do we think about this?
1: Yeah, let's just say first of all that it's a different world to have the time <laughs> to look at what preachers you don't know are wearing. Yeah. Uh, that, that is not there the world. Worst ways to spend your time, <laughs> yeah. but you're right. It's probably not one of the best ways. That's a different world than I live in. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I'm not sure that I'm great to speak on this topic because I've, I've been – I'm somewhere between frugal and cheap. Okay. okay. So uh, when you're a seminarian in a Ph.D. program yeah, yeah. pastoring at a church plant, Money isn't something that's just flowing in, and when it does, it typically goes to books. Yeah, and so that, that I, I tend to even think of books as a price point. So yeah, I'll, but
0: what if books are these 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 particular preachers? I'm not sure books are their thing. Yeah,
1: I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. Maybe so. their
0: thing is not books, Ronnie Kurtz. Well, what I Don't what be I'm so going to say maybe here. their thing
1: is your thing is books and their thing is sneakers. What's <laughs> what's wrong with that? How, what I was going to say is even though I am somewhere between frugal and cheap. Uh, if my wife was here, she'd probably say, you're more on the cheap side than you're letting on. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I like them, have a gravitational pull towards materialism. And I think that, that that's what's happening here yeah. is uh, this is such a pertinent question after our last one is the gospel actually speaks to the way we spend our money. Yeah. And I think we're fooling ourselves or at least happening to sear our consciences yeah. to – to find a way to justify buying a thousand dollar sneakers, yeah. Um, so that that's just me speaking, pretty frankly. Um, yeah, about the yeah. issue.
0: Yeah, uh, you know. So first of all, I think you said the word "havening" in the last the last. Segment. I just want to point that worry, out. That was just ridiculous that you'd say that. But then I want <laughs> we my, all we all, make, <laughs> we all make mistakes, brother. Uh, you'll get that PhD someday, but probably maybe not, not anymore. <laughs> not, not with the word "havening" in there. Uh, let me say this. So I'm slightly uncomfortable with trying to figure out who's spending what amount of money on what like most people i have a instant kind of gross you know yuck factor on the pastor driving the bentley or or the four thousand dollar tennis shoes or whatever it is and i can instinctively say that's too much money for a pair of tennis shoes that's ridiculous um but i don't know that that's the whole of the problem yeah. because at what point do you say that's too expensive i mean I you know I took my daughter shoe shopping this past uh, weekend. My daughter, uh, she, she always buys her shoes at Payless, and they wear out and they're cruddy. And so my concern is not that she looked cool and look hip. I wanted to have shoes that last because yeah. I'm tired of buying Payless shoes every year. So let's get a, a good pair of shoes. And I told her I, I don't care what they cost. So we went to Dick's, and I don't normally buy shoes at a retail price that are new. And new shoes are like if you want good sneakers, like Nike running shoes are like hundred and fifty bucks or yeah. two hundred bucks sometimes um you know, I don't buy shoes, you know, I go to Ross dress for less so It tells you something about <laughs> hey, I'm kind of a sneaker head myself um I don't you know, I've got a lot of sneakers, my wife makes fun of me, but they're all purchased at places like that yeah t j Maxx, ross um yeah, so i I'm not paying usually more than fifty bucks for a pair of shoes, but you know you add them all together, somebody would say, who needs?" You know, 15 pairs of shoes. Why would you need that? So we are all on the sliding scale Absolutely. of what's too much. To me, the question is not how much are they spending. I do think they're spending too much. But what are they communicating with mm. this? Because in some of the photos, it's very clear that it's not simply I happen to be wearing these $3,500 shoes. Um, but I, I want you to believe that I somehow happen to be lounging in this chair with these $1,500 pants next to a $3,000 Gucci bag. Right? There's one particular photo where the, the proprietor of this account cataloged everything in the photo. And it was very obviously a staged kind of photo. And the, and, and the pastor got angry. You know, why would you? Go? And he, he tried to defend himself in the sense of saying, I didn't pay for any of this stuff. It was all given to me. Hmm. And I began to think, "I wonder that's a bigger problem maybe. It was yeah. given to you wow. for a particular reason. You posed with it for that reason. Sen- essentially, this was a sponsored ad. And not a sponsored ad like, you know, Open Door Mission or whatever it is, you know, paid you $20 to talk about them or to advertise them on your blog or whatever it is. But Gucci gave a preacher a bag so that he would take an Instagram photo with it. The bag could have cost $25. What are we communicating by by being preachers who advertise for brand, for fashion brands? And I think it comes back to something that we talked about on a previous podcast in um, particular the attractional, growing, you know, growing without going attractional. And we talked about hiring pastors uh and not personalities. That's right. This is sort of the lifestyle brand, really you know, preacher as lifestyle brand. And it's a very peculiar phenomenon. Um it's it, it, it's a rarity. One reason we shouldn't get really upset about this, I mean I think we we can be properly um, in the right way, offended, uh, you know, by it. But we shouldn't get over, because this is just like you know, such a minority, um, you know, and these celebrity preachers. Some of them, they're celebrity preachers. I never heard of them, so it tells you how big a celebrity or what tribe <laughs> or culture they're in. Our celebrities typically aren't heard of outside, you know, our particular evangelical tribe. Those sorts of things. But I think there's something that is is being emulated, and there's sort of a peddling of the gospel issue yeah. um, taking place there.
1: Um, any last words on that or anything else? Now I'm just when you said the preachers in our tribe, I'm just wondering how much Ray Orland's shoes cost now. So <laughs> uh,
0: I don't know that I've ever looked at the shoes. You know that may be that's something uh, I'm telling about him. There's nothing showy. Yeah, there you go. About Ray Orland, what shows about Ray Orland is the glory of Jesus. Amen. I went Through him. Yeah. Also, you said heavening in your in your statement. And on that note, <laughs> I feel like I hurt your feelings. No, you're laughing. Okay. No. No. All right. No, no. Um, On that note, thank you so much for listening to the For the Church podcast. Uh, As always, if you enjoy what you heard here, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri where we train leaders for the church.